2: W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Journalist Martha Gellhorn was among the greatest war correspondents of the 20th century, beginning with her work during the Spanish Civil War. Her revolutionary career and stormy marriage to Ernest Hemingway are depicted in the novel Love and Ruin* by Paula MacLean. Later this hour, we'll listen back to an interview with the author who earlier wrote The Paris Wife, a novel about Hemingway's first marriage. First, you know how in theaters we're reminded to silence our phones? Well, imagine your phone as the theater. Immersive experience has become very popular as a catchphrase for creative encounters taking place everywhere from art galleries to escape rooms. But how about over the telephone? The innovative performances of Candle House Collective are played to a theater of one live via your telephone. In the comfort of your own home. It's an audio improv approach to creative storytelling, resulting in a unique choose your own adventure type of experience. Evan Niden is the founder of Candle House Collective and creator of the telephone only plays Next Time and. Claus. He joins me now via Zoom. Evan Niden welcome to City Lights.
1: Very happy to be here, Lois. Thanks for having me.
2: I was lucky enough to experience your play next time and look forward to discussing it with you in a moment. First, I was hoping you could give us some background on what inspired you to create Candle House Collective.
1: I really love immersive theater, and it's something that kind of lives at the intersection of most of the influences in my life. You know, from growing up on the Twilight Zone and traditional folk stories to a love of alternate reality games online and haunted houses, you know, growing up on those. And immersive theater kind of was at the crossroads between all of them. And it was something I fell in love with really quickly. And it was something I realized very quickly was pretty localized to very major metropolitan areas, New York, L.A., Chicago, London, and and other places like that. And not not much else, at least at the time. And I had already been so affected by this flourishing art form. I felt what was wanting was a way to be able to share it with anyone, anywhere, you know, but not in a recording sense, you know, that live interactive experience where the lasers of focus really are on you. So I decided to sort of G that up as much as I could, you know, to create something that was as accessible as possible, both location wise, and also you only, all you need is to be able to hear it, you know, something that could be experienced anywhere. And something that was one-on-one, like really intimate, really had all lasers focused on you so that it didn't feel like a pre-recorded thing. You know, it provided that level of intimacy you can get in an on-site immersive piece and then some.
2: Yeah. What is your history with theater?
1: I grew up loving the theater. I particularly was, I grew up in New York, so I was, you know, I was very fortunate to have the exposure to theater that I did. And my favorite pieces were performance art, Uh, you know, immersive, sure, sometimes, but also just Things I saw at La Mama or, you know, the Public Theatres Under the Radar Festival. Sometimes off the beaten path performance art that was more interested in being what it was for its own sake or for the creator's sake and sharing that with an audience rather than solely focusing on the audience. There was this short, sort of shared understanding. It it felt that this in the space. Everyone, everyone in the room was building something together, even if all you were doing was sitting in the dark.
2: Hmm. How many plays has Candle House produced? At this point, a little over 25. Wow. And what were some of the challenges
1: at the beginning? We started with a five month long alternate reality experience for 50 participants, five zero. So, and what I mean by that is it was a continuous story, one continuous story that unfolded over the course of five months for these 50 people. And the whole thing was free, you know, it was sort of a a proof of concept. And the first major challenge we ran into is, you know, how do you create something like immersive theater, which traditionally has been a very visual genre? How how do you create something like that without the visual? And something that I learned and got really excited about really quickly was that when you remove a sense that people are as reliant upon as sight, it drives the intention up and it can drive the intimacy up because a sense that one may be used to just relying on automatically is no longer in the picture so it's it's something new it's something new and it's something that allows you to shut out distractions allows you to tune in a little more
2: Hmm. it's hard to imagine the business side of playing to an audience of one if the goal of a traditional production is to fill theater seats how does that translate to one-on-one performances?
1: Yeah, that was a question that we had for a very long time. You know, uh, we started in January of 2018, and for about two years, that was the question. You know, how do we make this scalable? And for a while, it really wasn't. It was just proof-of-concept project after proof-of-concept project. And despite being over the phone, you know, we were, we were either breaking even or losing a bit on productions as I think a lot of immersive outfits and a lot of theatrical outfits do when they start up. But then Claws came along. It was the shortest piece I'd ever created for Candlehouse. It clocked in at 35 to 40 minutes, you know, kind of a one act almost. And it was this very succinct, highly interactive concept with a layer of choice that we expected to maybe run for a month. And here we are almost, yeah, almost two years later. And it's still going and we've been casting more and more people as the principal role. And the same has been the case with Next Time. And what we're discovering is there is a way to fill a house. It's just a lot more individual work, you know, to have multiple actors performing the same role and to develop a role that can accommodate a bunch of different types of people, a bunch of different types of actors is key to making this kind of thing lucrative.
2: Lucrative, but much less sustainable. I was wondering with all of the effort, do you have to have jobs on the side?
1: Yes, at this point, absolutely. A lot of the people who are part of the team at Candlehouse are very much multi-hyphenates and people of many hats. And in a way that makes things better, you know, because we have this collective of people who are so predisposed to thinking outside the box, because that's, you know, Art is not usually sustainable for for a while. And some people get lucky, some people really work to get there. But for the vast majority of artists, especially younger artists, it's not a sustainable living. So, you know, day jobs are necessary. But it means that the skills that people bring to the table are varied and often serve goals that we didn't, we may not even have known that we had. Wow, I imagine the level of
2: commitment is tremendous.
1: Absolutely. All of us really believe this is a significant part of what people refer to as the future of theater, which might sound you know, (laughs) out there, but telephonic pieces became not, I don't want to say commonplace, but they became more numerous during the pandemic. And there are a few out there aside from us that also have that longevity. And I'm really happy about that. I'm really happy that people are looking at this art form, not just as a an intriguing novelty but as a viable and potentially incredibly fruitful new avenue of theater great sir so as i mentioned i experienced your
2: production of next time before we move on i'd like to play a bit trailer
1: worried about the future
0: Disappointed with the past?
1: Overwhelmed by the present?
0: Overwhelmed? Worried? Confused? Don't be!
1: Do you know where you are? Do you know who you are? What brought you to this advertisement? Who is this advertisement brought to you by? And what do we do?
0: You already know.
1: You simply may have forgotten.
0: And that's okay. Because next time we call,
1: and we will
0: call, you'll find out all over again.
1: Confused. Worried. Overwhelmed. Don't be. Just answer the phone. We're We're
2: here here to help. help. So I think confused is indeed
1: how I felt at first,
2: but that's kind of your
1: purpose, isn't it? In a way, I mean, Next Time in particular is kind of a love letter to Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Beetlejuice, The Good Place, all all things that are confusing, you know, because they're about what's next. Exactly, what's coming, and that is a confusing thing to think about. And, you know, the line in the trailer is confused, worried, overwhelmed, don't be, because really, there's nothing else you can do. So your play
2: set up situations, which immediately put the audience member in the center of the story. I was hoping you could give us a summary of the story of next time. No spoilers, of course.
1: It is tricky because, as you know, the first major spoiler for next time comes about five seconds in. But um, <laughs> but I, I can say that next time is a session with an entity called the Bureau, and particularly a caseworker from the Bureau who has been assigned to your case. And what becomes clear, like I said, about five seconds in is what the purpose of this call is uh, I'm not going to say what it is, although most people could probably get it just from reading the, the description on our website. But it asks you to take an inventory of your life so far and sort of analyzes it, not necessarily in a psychotherapeutic way, but in a equal parts clinical and compassionate way to help you arrive at a very critical and I think often not really considered choice. That, that was really something we wanted to do with Next Time was take this concept, uh, you know, b- bureaucracy and the other thing that Next Time is about, both of which really aren't associated with a ton of agency. If anything, they're associated with limitation and inevitability and uh, inconvenience, sadness, etc. And we wanted to introduce elements of absurdism and, Wonder and choice was the big one, you know, as you know, next time comes with a very big choice. And I think that's the core of the piece is that choices are critical, you know, even in the strangest of moments, because, you know, and this is the tagline of the call, but there's no time like the present. If
2: you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes and my guest is Evan Niden, founder of Candle House Collective and creator of the telephone only plays Next Time and Claws. When I experienced Next Time, I was asked to offer occasional personal details which then became part of the story. I chose to answer honestly. Is that necessary or is that your intention?
1: As clearly as we can, we ask people to come as their honest selves. We understand people have different levels of comfort and, you know, for some of our more intense pieces that have much more limited runs, you know, being yourself is necessary. But what we're giving you among other things, what we're connecting you with is vulnerability you know, sure, there might be a a character on the other end of the line, but the person performing it, it's not a, you know, memorized script that they're just repeating over and over They are there to connect with you. They're there to create something with you. They're putting themselves, all of themselves on the table. And we ask that the participant, any participant do the same, not just out of respect for the work, but moreover, respect for their own enjoyment or appreciation of it, because you will get the most out of what we do by just coming as you are.
2: Mm. Next time is a fantasy comedy, but your production of Claws is decidedly darker. My senior producer, Kim, knows I don't like horror. I don't do well with scary stories. So she volunteered to experience claws, And she said it was wonderfully creepy. She also mentioned a similar give and take of information with the character. Does the darker mood of the story of claws add more weight to that exchange?
1: In a way, I think yes. I, I mean, next time is a story about you. You know, the, the caseworker is there, as any caseworker is, as a facilitator, and and there are elements of the caseworker's own story in there. But really, it's a story that is entirely dependent on what you think, what you feel, what you believe, and who you are. Clause is not the opposite, but it, but it is different because you are asked to take on the role of a helpline representative and you're helping someone else. So in a way, you know, it could be considered maybe a little easier for people who don't like getting quite as intimate, but I hesitate to say that because you're right, the darkness of the subject matter and the scenario that the lead character Danny is in do lead to some very personal explorations and and, and realizations, even through the lens of his own conflict.
2: Kim asked that I play part of the trailer for Claws.
0: (laughs) There's something in my closet. It's, um, it it looks like, uh, there's a monster in my closet. And if you don't send help, it's going to kill me. And I... Hello? Did, did you, you? You can hear me, right?
2: That's pretty scary stuff. And I wondered, for the actors leading these performances, are the darker stories particularly draining? I mean, what are what are the pressures or inspirations that actors experience performing in such an unconventional space
1: themselves at least with the first project the first few projects it was just or mostly me doing doing most of the performing most of the calls you know there were nights I'd do 15 calls back to back and we've brought that number extremely down because you know I'm not expecting anyone else to do that but the challenge of the work is also the privilege of the work. You know, the, the challenge is it's intimate and immediate, and that's also what's so exciting about it. And it does depend on the piece, I think. You know, Clause is very high-octane. It's, it is horror-coded, and, you know, the, the energy of that, literally just the energy of existing in that high-octane space is is tiring. But it's also very exciting because there's no monotony to it every person brings something different a piece like next time equally so you know next time might be uh, may lend itself a bit more to repetition because you know repetition is in the world of the piece uh you know the caseworker you're definitely not their last case that day so it almost feels in the the character but to do a a one-off scenario over and over again and to have it be so different every time is something I think is challenging at first but invariably what performers who you know our performers realize is that what it does is make it exciting it makes the anticipation of waiting to make that next call waiting to begin someone else's experience it magnifies that because you as the performer are also getting an experience
2: yeah truly interactive audience members receive instructions before attending a performance. And these instructions
1: include a safe word. How did that come about? So the safe word is a relic, you know, from the very beginning, we had taken a cue from immersive horror companies and some theater outfits who because as an audience member for immersive work in general you're not sitting in the dark you know you are often in the space with actors it can be much harder to leave you know just walking out might be anxiety inducing at best and literally impossible at worst so and and even over the phone you know even though you can of course hang up it's still critical and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about why in a minute "Clause" and Next Time are both, for what we do, they're both fairly, I want to say tame, subject matter-wise, because the safe word it has been primarily employed for shows that tackle more intense subject matter. It's there to ensure that the person has a safe out. Because just hanging up, you know, you can do that, but it does leave a sense of you know, wanting a conclusion. And often that can make things worse. If someone is brought to the point of needing to say for it, often maybe they're at their limit emotionally, psychologically, and by just hanging up, they don't allow either party the chance to wrap it up in a very safe kind of out of world way, you know, and we have protocols in place to make sure that the person is okay, and safe before we hang up. Again, these things don't come up so much in a piece like Clause or Next Time. The work is personal, so every once in a while, but in other pieces we've done with much heavier or more serious subject matter, Safe Words have been absolutely critical to make sure that people disconnect fully and safely.
2: Evan Knighton, founder of Candle House Collective and creator of the telephone-only plays Next Time and clause more of our conversation after a short break you're tuned to WABE Atlanta This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. If you are just tuning in, I've been speaking with Evan Niden, founder of the Candle House Collective. Their performances are played to a theater of one, live, via your telephone in the comfort of your own home. Here, Niden explains the strengths he looks for when casting
1: actors for these unique productions. Adaptability. That's number one. Because the pieces change quite a bit, and, and not just participant to participant. Clause has changed quite a bit since I first created the, the treatment for it in 2020, the pieces that the longer they run, the more evolution they go through. No, no piece is ever really finished. And a lot of it is informed by what we realize might be challenges with participants, what we realize might not be working, what we should have more of. And that requires a great deal of adaptability on, on the actor's part to exist in this space that is ever revolving, that changes both call to call and day to day. That's, that's a really big one. And the other really big one is empathy. Which I know is a bit of a cliche when it comes to theater, but really it's an ability to genuinely listen and comprehend what someone else is saying, which is sort of a rare skill. You know, anybody can listen to what someone else is saying, but to really hear them and to really understand it in a way that allows you to respond with empathy, with immediacy is a very rare skill and it's something we, we look for. I happen to think that, you know, our actors are really, really good at what they do. And it's because they are so open to anything that someone might throw their way. It reminds me a lot of improv, but
2: without the yes and, I mean, there's no one to back up the
1: actor. You know, improv was a term I think we shied away from for a while, if only because I wasn't completely sure that that's what it was. You know, I've done improv work before and, and this felt different. And I think it is a form of improv. I think interactive theater is, is, does require improvisation as part of it. But with improv, most of the time, like exactly what you said, you're, you're backed up. You're working with at least one other performer. In this case, your scene partner is the audience member, and their participation is very active. You're not delivering a monologue to them. So the idea of improv, yes, is a part of it, but more than anything, it's the genuine connection. Dispensing with the theatrical veneer and taking a potentially you know, fantastical or, or unsettling concept and making it feel as real and make it feel as easy to suspend disbelief as possible.
2: So now I'm intrigued about your audition process. Do you audition over the phone?
1: We audition primarily with audio only. Uh, at least for, you know, when we're auditioning our telephone pieces. And and you know, there is physical work that goes into this, especially a piece like Claws which has motion in it. But it, a lot a lot of the people who are Candlehouse performers and artists are not necessarily voice actors. Some of them have even become voice actors or decided that that's what they wanted to do after working with Candle House. But a lot of the people who work for us actually come from more physical theater backgrounds. And the audition, part of that is us wondering, how do they funnel that into their voice? How do they take that physicality that they're comfortable with and good at? And how do we hear them do it without looking? And if they can, that's another huge green flag. Yeah.
2: My caseworker was highly energetic. I mean, I was amazed at her energy level. I kind of envied it.
1: Katie Murphy was your performer for Next Time. Uh, and Katie has been performing Next Time for a good long while since 2019 on and off. And, you know, she's actually created a couple of pieces for Candle House as well under a Firestarter initiative. And one of the things that I think she embodies very, very well is adaptability, especially in the sense of active, and I mean active listening. <laughs> you know, she she is really a picture of what active listening looks like or sounds like. And every performer has a different way that they do that. Katie comes at it like a neutron star, you know, very, you know, barreling in with high energy, high optimism, ready to do something good. And, you know, I think a lot of it may depend on the piece. You know, the performers who do Danny, it's more of a weight feeling. And the, the weight lifting is the moment when the participant answers the phone because it's a glimmer of hope in this otherwise hopeless scenario.
2: Evan Niden, founder of Candlehouse Collective and creator of the telephone-only plays Next Time and Claws. More information can be found on our website, wabe.orgslash citylights. Coming up, we'll listen back to my interview with author Paula McLean discussing her 2018 novel, Love and Ruin. You're tuned to WABE at This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Journalist Martha Gellhorn was among the greatest war correspondents of the 20th century, beginning with her work during the Spanish Civil War. Her revolutionary career and stormy marriage to Ernest Hemingway are depicted in the novel Love and Ruin by Paula McLean. When the author was on tour just after the novel's release in 2018, she explained why she
0: decided to write the book so it was just after I finished circling the Sun, and you know I have to be quite honest, I never thought that I would take up Ernest Hemingway as a subject again after the paris wife I mean he during that book I identified so deeply with Hadley it felt like I lived in her shoes and in her in her soul. Um, And, you know, Ernest Hemingway broke my heart 900 ways from Sunday, so why would I want to (laughs) spend any more time with that guy? Um, And so right after I finished Circling the Sun, I was thinking about another historical figure and doing research. And that's when I had this crazy dream that was so vivid and prophetic. I just thought I had to pay attention to it. And I was fishing with Hemingway. In the Gulf. Literally? Literally. Uh, a in sleeping the, tree. In the dream. Yeah, this vivid dream where I was fishing with, with Hemingway on his boat, Pilar, in the Gulf Stream. And there was another woman on board who was hand-feeding a marlin that had crested up out of the sea. And in the dream, she turned and faced me, and I recognized her as Martha Gellhorn. I hadn't thought about Hemingway in years. I'd never given her two seconds of thought as a subject But the next morning, still gripped by the dream and thinking, what kind of woman hand-feeds a marlin in dream or in life? I googled her over coffee and then was horrified that I had missed her, that I really didn't know about the arc of her life or her accomplishments you know, that she had a near 60-year career as a pioneering, trailblazing journalist, and also as a war correspondent. She was 28 years old when she took on her first war and 81 years old when she took on her last with the invasion of Panama. Astonishing. Astonishing.
2: Already in her 20s, Martha Gellhorn was very unusual for her era. What was she doing as the book begins?
0: As this book begins, she's really trying to find her way in the world. Her father is ill and then he dies, and it breaks her because she wanted his approval more than anything else. She had written two books by the time she was 28 years old, one of which was based on her years as a journalist Going, uh, working for the Federal Emergency Relief Administration and going into small towns all over America hit hardest by the Depression and writing accounts, interviewing them and writing accounts of their lives and their trials for Roosevelt and for the administration to understand what was really happening in the country. And that book, called The Trouble I've Seen, made her the literary sensation of 1936. But her first book, published when she was just 24, I believe, embarrassed her, terribly embarrassed her parents. Her father thought it was awful and trite and hectic and um, told her... Vulgar. Vulgar, a little (laughs) vulgar. So she hadn't quite found her way. And I identified really strongly with that. She had traveled a lot. She had dropped out of Bryn Mawr after 3 years wanting to live life and feel you know feeling that college didn't really provide that opportunity she was born as she said you know wanting to travel everywhere and experience everything and then to write about it
2: it is important to note that she was from a prominent family in St. Louis her father was a highly respected obstetrician surgeon um She was very close to her mother. She called her the North Star. And she managed to find a benefactor, someone who would sponsor her just to live in a great big house overlooking a meadow and write. How did Martha Gellhorn's looks
0: work against her? That's a great question. So... That can be a challenge, I think, for a woman in a man's world. Uh, Martha Gellhorn was beautiful and tall and stylish and looked great in her clothes and carried herself with this air of utter, I don't know, she was regal and she was intelligent. But her looks, I think she looked like Greta Garbo, could get in the way. I think a lot of men made passes at her. Her very first job as a journalist was with the Albany Union Times, and she was mostly covering the country club lunches and the morgue beat as a cub reporter, but only lasted six months there because her desk editor was making passes at her.
2: And of course, it is the 1930s. Things were not so good for women who wanted careers. A Christmas visit to Key West in 1936 was fateful. Please describe the scene as Marty, her mother, and brother duck into a bar to escape the midday sun.
0: So it's just accidental that Marty ended up in Key West in 1936. Her father had just died. She was spending Christmas with her family in St. Louis, and they just decided it was too sad and too desperate to stay there. So they took themselves to Miami, which depressed them further for whatever reason. And so one day they just climbed on a bus that said Key West on a placard in the window, and neither of them had ever heard of Key West. And three hours later, they climbed out of the bus onto the street with this marvelous, desultory small village, which Marty loved instantly. And they you know, came out of the sun into a bar, which just so happened to be Sloppy Joe's, which was Hemingway's hometown watering hole, and there he was, Martha Gellhorn's literary hero, writ large, reading his mail. Would you read that scene
2: for us, Paula?
0: I'd be delighted. Thank you. He wore a ragged t-shirt and shorts that seemed to have come from the bottom of a Fish Barrel, <laughs> both of which weren't doing him any favors, but it was him His dark, nearly black hair fell over one side of a pair of round, steel-wire spectacles. He caught me watching him, and our eyes met for a split second before he passed his hand through his mustache, absentmindedly, and went back to a stack of letters he was reading. I didn't say a word to Alfred or Mother, just let myself look at him for a moment the way a tourist looks at a map. His legs were brown and muscled as a prize fighter's. His arms were brown, too, and his chest was broad, and everything about him suggested physical strength and health and a kind of animal grace. The whole picture made an impression, but I wasn't going to trot over there and confess that I had his photo in my handbag, Mm -hmm. marking the page of my mystery novel. I'd clipped it from Time Magazine and also the long article alongside it that he'd written about bullfighting. I didn't want to stammer out how meaningful his writing was to me or abase myself by claiming that I was a writer, too. While still at Bryn Mawr, I had pinned my favorite quote from A Farewell to Arms, above the desk in my dormitory room, nothing ever happens to the brave. It was meant to be a daily reminder as I worked on my own writing, and a challenge, too, though I secretly hoped that everything happened to the brave, that life came hot and bright and loud if you flung yourself fully in its direction, in the dark, close bar, I tried to galvanize myself to approach him somehow. He was my hero, and not 20 feet away. Nothing ever happens to the brave, I thought, pinching myself and waiting for something clever to come to me. But nothing seemed good enough.
2: Did their meeting really happen the way you depicted? I mean, the bar and then Hemingway showing them around... Key West and inviting them home to meet his wife and children, that
0: all occurred. It all really occurred, and I know that from her letters at the time. Different biographers, and she has many very good ones, but different biographers of Marty have depicted that moment differently, and some find her in that moment to be quite... um, predatory and, and mercenary and that she had gone looking for Hemingway to sort of bag him like a kudu. And um, in fact, it was quite otherwise. She, it was quite by accident that she ran into him. And for many, many months, um, they were just allies. He was about to go off to Spain to report on the Spanish Civil War. She thought it was a marvelous opportunity to finally do something noble with her life. And she was always looking for something larger than herself to cling to. That friendship
2: developed, she's astonished that her literary idol has actually read her own book. And she's determined to go to Spain. She was very impassioned, sympathetic to the cause. She wants to write about the Spanish Civil War. Do either of them realize they're headed for an affair?
0: I don't think so. Later, she admitted that it was several weeks into their time in Madrid that he proposed marriage to her. But I think mostly he thought and told her at the time that she was the bravest woman he'd ever known. And I think he was incredibly impressed by her. The intensity of the situation in Madrid, too, when she arrived in Madrid in the spring of 1937 it was you know besieged for the last five months Franco's army surrounded the city on three sides the nearest front was a mile walking from the Hotel Florida where they both stayed and it took daily shell hits the intensity of that and she just felt like she was coming awake for the first time Mm. to real difficulty and pain and suffering in the world and I think that made them both quite susceptible. Now, Marty had
2: connections that were beyond those of most writers early in their careers. Her mother knew Eleanor Roosevelt, so this didn't hurt.
0: No, not at all, and Eleanor Roosevelt and Marty ended up really being quite devoted to each other in their lives. And and Eleanor always worried fearfully for Marty that she um, just wanted her to do well. And they became acquainted, personally speaking, when Marty worked for the FERA and stayed in the White House for a time um, and slept in the Lincoln bedroom. But um, this particular moment in New York when these dazzling writers who were also socially minded, like taking on this incredible, um, I think, uh, opportunity to fund Spain and to try to uh, f- you know, fight against Franco and fascism. And, and we don't really know much about the Spanish Civil War, but it really was an incredibly noble cause when all of Europe and America, too, was turning a blind eye to Franco's going village to village, slaughtering people. Mm. And so 40,000 volunteers came to fight for Spain, people who had never been in a war. Now, Marty always wanted to be a foreign correspondent. But at this moment, as she's watching all these literary lions, she has no recourse. She has no credentials. As a journalist, she has no job. And she has really no way to get over to Spain. So what she decides to do, and she's always sort of living on her nerve, she decides that she wants to write an article for Vogue magazine about the beauty problems of the middle-aged woman. (laughs) Now she's 28. She has no beauty problems. At all. Um, and it w- gets her $300, and so she, she has passage to Spain, but she has no credentials. So, what she does is begs a letter from an editor friend who works for Collier's Magazine, which at that time had several million circulation. I told you she worked for the Albany Union Times as a cub reporter for six months. So this is not, you know what I mean? This is not in her league at all. And she begs this letter from the editor friend saying, you know, Martha Gellhorn is a special correspondent for the magazine. She was nothing of the kind. But she took herself over to France, crossed over the border in the middle of the night from France into Spain on foot, alone. She had the fake letter and she had 50 bucks rolled up and tucked in her boot and no Spanish and only this conviction and desire to be witness to this extraordinary moment in history.
2: If you just tuned in, this is City Lights. My guest is the author Paula McClain. Her new book is Love and Ruin, about the writer and war correspondent, Martha Gellhorn, who was Ernest Hemingway's third wife. Paula, I almost feel like it's unfair to attach that to the description of Martha Gellhorn when she was such an important figure in her own right, yet that identity was at the center of their relationship, at the center of many difficult moments of their relationship. No doubt, no doubt. So what happens once she makes it to Madrid? The Spanish Civil War brings them closer, they became lovers, yet his success and her
0: aspirations already We're giving them cause for arguments. And providing a kind of tension. What's interesting to me is that at the very beginning, they were only allies and supporters of each other's work. They fall in love in Madrid. And Hemingway, as well as being her mentor, teaching her all about sort of the nature of war and how to survive in this besieged city was also encouraging her work. When she went over there, she didn't really know. She wanted to be there and bear witness, but she didn't really know what she would write about it or to whom she would send it. She had no, as I said, no credentials, no formal post there as a journalist. And as she watched what was happening in Madrid, She became more and more drawn to the stories of ordinary people. And while Hemingway and his fellow, mostly male journalists, were off in the trenches reporting on battle statistics and tactics and artillery and all of those things, she was doing something that actually never had happened in journalism before, which was paying attention to the ordinary stories of the people there whose lives were being ripped apart by war. The women waiting in, you know, lines for all day for bread, or the children who were walking to school through the streets, through trails of blood, and and this was what she was drawn to, and she began to write about that. Ernest encouraged her to send her first piece to Collier's magazine where she had the fake letter from, and they took it immediately, and then they took another, and suddenly she was on the masthead, and very quickly, within six months, she went to you know from being a war tourist, or a fraud as a correspondent, to being one of the most important voices coming from this war, and, and it really did. She changed the face of journalism, and although at the beginning, he admired her courage and her independence, and this her spirit and her and her all of this her bravery and and her writing when spain fell and they both went to cuba to begin writing their books Then they began to be at odds, you Mm -hmm. know. His work took everything over, and she was struggling. He was working on For Whom the Bell Tolls, which would become his, you know, Spanish Civil War masterpiece, and sell more books in that day when it was published in 1940 than any other book in history save Gone with the Wind. (laughs) (laughs) And she, of course, was struggling to write a novel, too, that almost disappeared the moment that it, you know, hit the shelves.
2: No matter what else happened going forward, Ernest and Madrid and this awful, marvelous war were tangled up inside me like the story of my own life. I wouldn't keep them. I couldn't, but they were mine. After Spain, Gellhorn spent the better part of a year traveling through Europe and writing more pieces for colliers you mentioned a moment ago that she changed the face of journalism was that what we refer to as human interest stories
0: absolutely i would say that she always she was born with a loud social conscience you mentioned her father who was a prominent obstetrician and gynecologist in St. Louis. Her mother had always been involved in human rights and women's suffrage. And, you know, they were very, not just liberal-minded, but fair-minded and active in their social views. They took steps. They did things. And she was always going to be that sort of person. That being said, I think she was very surprised to go over to Spain and find herself completely borne away into this career and when Spain began to fall, call your center, you know, throughout the countries of Europe, sort of basically taking the pulse of those countries that were about to fall into the shadow of fascism.
2: Paula, what happened when Gelhorn joined Hemingway in Cuba?
0: So this is my favorite part of their story. And so when Spain fell and the world was falling to pieces, Hemingway decided he wanted to go to Cuba to begin this novel, which would become For Whom the Bell Tolls, away from the pressures of family life. And he asked her to join him, basically saying, you know, the world might not be here tomorrow, but who would I rather have in the foxhole than you, the bravest woman I've ever known? And you'll write a book, and I'll write a book, and we will... Care for only each other and tend our own campfire and 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 love each other's books like children, and he was living in one hotel and writing in another in you know absolute squalor because he was quite a pig, (laughs) and she turned up saying you know I haven't traveled half the world to be your mistress in a pigsty, and so she went looking for a house, and she looked at the Havana want ads and found an abandoned fifteen acre farm about 13 miles outside of Havana and went to look at it and fell madly in love and it had been you know in ruins it had been abandoned for many years but she saw this potential and she just decided that this was something that she was going to love she was going to put down roots for the first time in her life she was going to try for something for domesticity for stability in love for real companionship and And she had this dream. She would love this house. She would save it as she hadn't been able to save Spain. And she was going to try for something as a woman and as a writer to have both of those things alive in her simultaneously.
2: Author Paula McLean discussing her 2018 novel Love and Ruin. The book is about Martha Gellhorn, one of the greatest war correspondents of the 20th century. If you would like to dive deeper into Gelhorn's stormy marriage to Ernest Hemingway, that topic is also explored in the PBS series, Hemingway, available for streaming via ATL PBA. Finally, Delta Airlines is partnering with the nonprofit organization, Captain Planet Foundation to bring gardens to elementary schools nationwide. The Project Learning Garden Contest is open to submissions now in New York City, Seattle, and Atlanta. Delta employees will also volunteer to help students install and plant gardens at the selected schools. Students will learn about healthy eating and the excitement of growing their own food. Nominations are being accepted through January 14th at cpf.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., The acclaimed Atlanta artist Radcliffe Bailey joins us to discuss his new installations, the most recent of which is at the Cascade Springs Nature Preserve in southwest Atlanta. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drokes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Kennedy. I'm your host, Lois Wrights. And we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois And of course, I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S- R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR.
0: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from W-H-Y-Y and NPR.